Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult Series. Be sure to visit primed.com podcast after the discussion for more information about today's article and to claim CME-CE credit. A relatively healthy 52-year-old male comes into your office for a checkup. You notice that it's time for him to undergo colorectal cancer screening, and you recommend a colonoscopy. Like many patients, he is hesitant to undergo this test and asks if it's truly necessary, as he is otherwise healthy and no one in his family has ever had colon cancer. Does he need colorectal cancer screening? And if so, what are the best options for him if he doesn't want a colonoscopy? Hi, this is Frank Domino, and joining me today to discuss this topic is Dr. Robert Baldor, Professor and Chairman of the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, Bay State Campus. Thanks for coming today, Bob. Thanks, Frank. It's good to be back. Wow. So, um, this is interesting. Does doesn't everybody after 50 need colon cancer screening? What's, what's the latest data? Yeah, Frank, this is an article that was published here on a clinical practice guideline in the, the British uh, Medical Journal. And uh, they actually, uh, their conclusion here was that uh, not everybody does and that we should move towards a risk-based model of, uh, of screening. And uh, uh, they actually said if your, your risk of uh, developing colorectal cancer, 15-year risk now, we're moving to, uh, is below 3%, suggested no screening. No screening. No screening. Wow. That's, that's interesting. Um, well, uh, I, I've been encouraging patients forever. Um, what, what should we be doing then? Yeah. What, what, are, what, are the, what are our options? Yeah, I think this is really interesting because I think we're seeing more and more about shared decision-making in practice, and this is another one of those things that's coming up to sort of saying well, there should be some shared decision-making around this. We don't, this is nothing absolute about this as what they did. So partly the way they did this was really interesting to me is uh, they tried to look at the data around uh, outcomes related to, to screening out there. And there had been a recent update um, on three major trials looking at sigmoidoscopy screening and, and outcomes over 15 years later. Uh, but really, there's no randomized trials out there that address the effectiveness of fit testing or colonoscopy screening related to outcomes. And I was really surprised at that. So what they did is they actually pulled this panel together, international panel. They brought patients in uh, who had had um, uh, screening. They brought in uh, general uh, practitioners, general internists, gastroenterologists, some content experts in the, in the field, uh, and uh, oncologists, uh, methodologists, and uh, nurse practitioners. And uh, the um, no conflicts of interest were among that group. And they brought them together to look at all the data and come up with some what they thought was a shared decision-making model, I think is what they did, having patients involved as part of this. And so they really said there was no um, uh, really insufficient data out there there. Um, and the only thing that's been studied is uh, guaiac fecal occult blood or sigmoidoscopy. However, those aren't really being used much anymore. And so what they ended up doing is no randomized trials have addressed the effectiveness of fit testing or colonoscopy screening. So they worked out a micro simulation model that they had to look at the data, looked at, uh, at cancer registries, and they looked at the types of screening that had been done and tried to draw some conclusions uh, from those looking at the estimates of, uh, of, of cancer as 
as a, as as part of that. Looked at whatever systematic reviews they could find. So so the data here was a little bit. So if you actually their conclusion when they conclude this, by the way, they're saying this is actually a weak recommendation. So there's not real strong evidence out there um, to to make this as a strong uh, recommendation. There's not there's weak evidence to support screening or weak evidence to support not screening. So when they their conclusion, they're saying the evidence really says if you have less than a three percent. Um, uh, chance of developing colorectal cancer over the next 15 years, so somebody between the ages of 50 and 75, um, then don't bother screening. And All right. And so they're saying, you know, there's weak evidence for us making that, but we think it's a valuable thing to do. If you look at this screening and you say you're doing it, over the course of that time, how many lives are you going to save? Well, for every thousand people screened, probably five. So, you know, it really gets into, uh, or not lives saved, but detection of, of cancer, it's about five. So really um, interesting data trying to tease out what this, uh, what, what this actually means and how we integrate it into practice uh, as, we, as we go forward. So you bring up uh, an interesting question. You say if the 15-year risk is below 3%, screening is possibly not valuable. How do we decide if someone has a 15-year colorectal cancer risk? So like most things, there's an app for that. <laughs> there's actually a, a tool that they, that they have developed and we're working on uh, and, and it's called the uh, Q-Cancer uh, tool. And it brings in all of the uh, factors that are, we know are uh, related to colorectal cancer. And so a patient would work through that, that tool to determine that risk and it would give them their percent risk of, of developing colorectal cancer over the next uh, 15, uh, 15 years. And then once you have that percentage, you can make a decision if you're less than 3%, hmm, should you undergo screening? And then again, what kind of screening should you undergo? So the, the risk factors that they use are age, uh, gender, ethnicity, smoking status, family history, et cetera. Pretty interesting that I mean that a tool can help predict things that that accurately. Um, I'm guessing that information then leads to my next question. Um, you you said the term shared decision making. How do we engage our patient with regards to his preferences regard uh, with regards to screening and his cancer risk? Yeah, well, part of that is is the, uh, I, I think, you know, colonoscopy still is the uh, gold standard, by the way, but that, you know, reg preparation, time in the hospital, anesthesia, uh, not pleasant for a lot of people. So there are other ways of testing. And I just wanted to review those because um, I've been using fit tests for a long time. And I was actually for a number of years, I used fecal occult blood testing and it got supplanted by fit testing. And, and so I was trying to, I actually wanted to look and say, well, what's going on with those tests? So just, if I may for a minute, explain those. Sure. So the fecal occult blood testing, it's a chemical reaction dependent on the perioxidase activity of heme. And so therefore you get lots of false positive because it can be heme from anything. It's not just human blood. If somebody's had red meat, it'll do it. But also you can have a perioxidase reaction and you see that in vitamin C and, and plants and so on. So really a poor test shouldn't even be used anymore at this point in the game. The FIT testing now, it's actually an antibody to human globulin, right? It's human hemoglobin. So it's an antibody to the globin in the, um, I'm sorry, I said globulin. It's an antibody to the globin that's in hemoglobin that is there. So therefore nothing to do. It, it, you could have animal blood. It's not going to react. You could have other things that are there. So it's not there. The other neat thing with the FIT test, if you have an upper GI bleed, human globin 
is degraded by the digestive uh, uh, tract upper. So really this is a detection for lower GI bleeding. And this test really has very good, um, a lot of qualified studies have showed the overall accuracy, 95% for the detection of colorectal cancer. Um, and of course, we, uh, since uh, 2014, we've actually had uh, uh, the availability of stool uh, DNA testing uh, that is uh, uh, that can be used. So what does that do? This is looking for the uh, DNA that is present in colorectal cancer. So again, cancers have mutations in the DNA, and so it's picking up those um, uh, those DNA mutations that are seen in the uh, in, in the stool. Interesting, it's got pretty good sensitivity and specificity, but uh, some studies have shown it's been really uh, detecting fewer than half of all large advanced uh, adenomas. Actually has lower sense specificity compared to the FIT testing. So for the most part, if you look at the, uh, the recommendations, uh, the, the FIT testing is recommended over that, uh, the Colgard testing. And finally, there's a blood test. I don't know if you're aware of this. I wasn't aware of this until I was reading this article out there. It's a uh, blood test, FDA approved here in uh, uh, 2016. It's looking at septin-9 DNA. It's found in tumor DNA and it's shed in the bloodstream from intestinal uh, tumors and so it picks up that. Now this test doesn't have very good sensitivity, but it has high specificity, so maybe something to be used for, uh, for follow-up. Regardless, any of these testings you're gonna have, if you're, any of these tests are positive, you need a colonoscopy so you can become a diagnostic colonoscopy at, uh, at that point. So when, when you're discussing shared decision-making, you can say your options, if your risk is less than 3%, you can do nothing, or we can go through a fit testing or possibly some other testing. So you, you offer them a variety of options and then and try to follow the patient. Yeah, I this, like this that guide, approach. This guideline, though, Frank said, if you're less than three percent, no don't, testing. Don't bother. It wasn't. It wasn't saying over uh, when over colonoscopy. It was saying no testing. All right, so, all right. But that raises my last question, Bob. So your risk is less than three percent. Maybe you go back and forth and talk about these options. What happens if this if, if your 52 year old male goes on to develop colon cancer in five or 10 years? Are you liable for that? Yeah, I think this is always the really uh, a piece that we do worry about, and uh, as as part of that. But I think if you really have had a shared decision making process uh, with that patient, and you've sat down with them, and you document that you calculated the risk, the risk came out to say two percent. And uh, discussed with the patient. The patient was reluctant, and, and and they decided to not undergo that testing. I think that you know, again, this has not been tested out, I suppose. Um, but I, I think you got to document. I think documentation is key that you actually had that with a patient. But you do want to say, you know, what it was based on. That you actually went through a risk assessment. You actually calculated the percent, and that you informed them that. Um, the, that there are different guidelines out there, but this, there's one that's, that would agree. If you don't want testing, you're really low risk, and probably it's okay, and, um, and that they agreed with that. Again, like most things, though, I believe we have to follow our patients. So that may be the, what happened this year. Make sure next year you don't just say, well, they decided they don't want this done, so forget it. I'm never going to bring it back up to them. It does behoove us to come back the following year because patients' values change over time and our understanding of these diseases change over time and to sort of uh, make sure that you have that follow-up. I think that makes very good sense. I wish there was a, a, a tool similar to this tool for prostate cancer or breast cancer or all the other common cancers because I think it helps patients put in perspective uh, why we do these tests and maybe now why we, we, we don't do them. Bob, thank you so, so much. We'll make sure that the Q Cancer Calculator is on our landing page so that you can uh, 
start using this with patients, and at least use it to initiate a discussion about if and how they want to be screened for colon cancer. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, Frank. Really interesting study, and look forward to seeing how uh, this uh, evolves into our screening um, mechanisms and methods over time. Practice pointer. It's time to move towards a shared decision-making discussion with our patients about colorectal cancer screening. Tools now exist to help you calculate their pretest probability of going on to develop colon cancer. If that risk is less than 3%, uh, screening tests like fit testing or colonoscopy may not be necessary. Make sure you document that you've had this discussion with patients, including the risks you've calculated, and follow up each year to make sure that their values are still the same. Join us next time when we talk about the 2019 update to the 2018 American Diabetes Association guidelines on the use of GLP-1 agonists and GLP-2, SGLT2 receptor antagonists uh, for patients with type 2 diabetes. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, visit primemed.com slash podcast and see you next week.